Okay, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 136. Today we're looking at Ruth, chapters 1 and 2, and then Proverbs 12, verses 8 through 17, and finally John, chapter 9. Okay, so in Ruth today, um, this is obviously a, a very short book of the Old Testament. We'll be through it in two days, uh, but it's um, it's a wonderful story and kind of a a refreshing palate cleanser, if you will, after reading the book of Judges. That's not to say that everything is hunky-dory in Ruth. In fact, the beginning of it um, is quite, quite tragic. But, um, but yeah, after after you get done with the book of Judges, and everything is just terrible, it's it's good to see a story that is encouraging, um, and where we see faithfulness on display. And so it's interesting to learn in the first verse that this actually happens during the time of the Judges. Um, And there is a famine in the land. And having just come out of Judges, we can kind of guess um, why the famines typically happen, why uh, hardship was happening to the people of Israel shortly after their occupation of the land, right? They've turned away from the Lord. We've seen how foreign oppressors have come in. Um, and sometime during that time period of, you know, roughly about 200 years, um, you know, give or take a few generations, um, they, they experience all kinds of hardships like this. And, uh, often it is portrayed, at least in the book of Judges, as part of God's judgment against them, and also this, uh, this tool to bring them back, to turn them back. God often uses hardship as that. And, you know, so when we're experiencing hardship in our lives, we know that at least one thing that God uh, can and most probably is doing is calling us back to himself, using it to turn us, our eyes back to him. Um, And we're told about the the characters right away. Um, It's a man named Elimelech, uh, his wife, Naomi, and whose two sons, his son's name are Machlon and Kilion. And uh, they go to sojourn in the country of Moab because there is this famine in the land. Now, it's probably a little bit ironic here that they come from a town called Bethlehem in Judah. The name Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, means house of bread. And so there, there's a famine there. Okay, uh, it's a bit of an ir- ironic twist, perhaps. And uh, they... They go to sojourn in Moab. Um, it's a little unclear it's po- as to whether or not they were wrong to do this. Um, recall that like Abraham uh, both left the land and was called to stay in the land when there was a famine there. So does God expect his people to just stay in the land and tough it out when this happens? Um, uh, or are, are they permitted to go and sojourn? elsewhere, this time among the Moabites. It's a little bit unclear. And remember, in the Samson narrative, when he sought to marry a Philistine woman, I noted that uh, these are technically not of the quote-unquote people of the land, the Canaanites, who are to be driven out. Um, this, this is, yet, there's still a little bit of questioning as to whether or not it's right to be marrying with these other people, right? That they are supposed to stay, the Israelites are supposed to stay uh, distinct from all the other people in the world. They are set apart. We saw that Abraham cared very much about this. But they go and they take Moabite wives. And Moabites, um, 
there's like this love-hate relationship with them. They are related to Israel, and yet their relationship has, has, as far as we have seen so far, been very much one of antagonism, Um, and um, not least of which includes the command that we see in Deuteronomy 23.3 that Moabites are not allowed to enter into the congregation of the Lord up to several generations. So, um, it's some questionable stuff going on here, um, but I do remind. I think as readers, we should be reminded, especially as ones who maybe have had breakfast recently, that this is happening during a time of famine. That there is uh, desperateness going on here, and so um, we might want to criticize the morals, but it's at the same time, you know, these people are probably acting out of desperation to some extent. And especially if you note the order in which they did it. So they go to, in which events happen, they go to uh, Moab, uh, Elimelech dies, Naomi is left there alone with her two sons, the end of the famine is nowhere in sight, and so Naomi finds for her sons two Moabite women. Um, And the name of one is Orpah, the other one's name is Ruth. And they live there ten years they live in Moab 10 years, um, and the, the famine is going on this whole time. So this is quite the famine. And then both of her sons die. Both Machlon and Chilion die. And the woman is left without her two sons and her husband and these two Moabite women who are her daughter-in-laws who are both now widows. So that's the initial setting of the book, and it's pretty awful. This is a terrible situation to be in. Um but uh, but yeah, she so Naomi then hears that the fields uh, in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food, and so she arises to return, and the daughter-in-laws uh, begin to um, begin to go with her. She tells them to go back to their mother's homes, to their the the, the houses they came from. Um, and gives them this blessing from Yahweh. May Yahweh show chesed to you, do chesed to you. That is uh, his loyal faithfulness, often associated with his fidelity to his covenant. And um, and then uh, may Yahweh grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. So implying that they will go and they will be they will uh, remarry and. Uh, she kisses them, they weep, and uh, again, they insist that they return with her, and uh, she's, uh, Naomi is able to successfully convince um, uh, Orpah to do this. Um, her, her, she basically says, like, what, what good is it for you if you return with me? Even if I had sons in my womb whom you could marry, uh, what are you going to do? Wait for them to be grown? So, like, there's there's no chance you guys have a future with me. So she kisses Orpah, and who goes? But Ruth continues to cling to her, and um, and she makes this tremendous statement here, where she says, "Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge." So showing extraordinarily extraordinary love. For Naomi, who is um, very vulnerable now, very doesn't and she doesn't have a lot of prospects staying with her. Uh, but nevertheless, she is showing her 
this love, almost as a daughter would show love to a mother. Um, and then she says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So there is this expression not only of love for Naomi, but also this desire to become part of Israel, as we've seen uh, with the example of Rahab, with the example of others now who have joined into Israel. And um, the idea, your God will be my God, that is reminiscent of what I've called the heart of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, covenant. Back in Genesis 17, they will be my people and I will be their God. So there's this desire for this as well on the part of Ruth. Um, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth just showing this extraordinary desire to come and be part of the peop- of, of the covenant people of Israel and to live out the rest of her days with Yahweh as her God, whatever that might mean. So they return together, and... Um, the people, the whole town of Bethlehem is very stirred about this. Naomi's back. Naomi's back. And um, she tells them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, you might recall from the Israelite wandering that the word Mara means bitterness. In fact, one of the places where the Israelites ended up staying was called Mara because of the bitter water that was there. Um, Naomi, of course, means pleasant, as you will find in most footnotes in your Bibles. Um, So don't call me pleasant, but call me bitter, for Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. And notice I say Shaddai. In most English translations, you will have Almighty. But as I've mentioned before in my discussion, I think of Genesis 17 also, um, as well as passages like Exodus 6.3, that this name for God... Um, that is often translated almighty probably doesn't mean almighty it probably is it is a, a, probably attached to this title god of the field or god of the plain or something like that um, which i've noted uh, is a suitable name for god um, of uh, for the people who are pastoralists who are shepherds um, and in the Bible especially, and I think it's relevant here, this name is connected to the promises to offspring. And that's almost exclusively throughout the Pentateuch, at least, where this name uh, of God occurs. It occurs in contexts where the focus is on the offspring, the future generations. And so notice how fitting that is here, right? The Shaddai, who is supposed to be the God who helps us to gain offspring and and gives a blessing to our descendants, he has cut me off. He has made it so that my my line will now, and my husband's line will now die with me um, and my widowed daughter-in-law. I left full and now I will return empty. Um, And uh, this is Yahweh who has done this. He has, he has, he has brought me back, um, empty. Um, Yahweh has testified against me. He has brought me calamity. Um, Now, of course, there's an element of real truth in this, and that God is sovereignly directing events, but there's an ending to this story that she doesn't yet see. 
uh, and it tells us, we get this um, kind of foreshadowing of, uh, at the end of chapter 1, that it was the beginning of barley harvest. So whereas we saw in the first chapter, we see famine, we see death, um, we see weeping and crying and uh, uh, no hope of for future generations in this family. Now we come back and we see the beginning of harvest happening, okay, which is a good thing. So Naomi points out to Ruth that she has that there is a relative of her deceased husband of Elimelech, of Elimelech, who belongs to his clan, and his name is Boaz. And it's important to realize in the story of Ruth this concept of the kinsman redeemer in Hebrew, the Goel. So somebody who is uh, who is close enough in blood relation to have the privilege to exercise various forms of redemption. Like if, if you are sold into slavery or if your land is sold, this is somebody who can buy you or it back. Um, this is someone also who has the right to avenge blood uh, if you're murdered or something like that. Um, but then also uh, to care in very special ways for your family members should you be gone. There's also that responsibility there. Uh, or at least the option to exercise that kind of familial love. And uh, so Naomi lets Ruth know about this guy. And so Ruth is now going to go and is going to glean among the uh, barley harvest. And now there's a difference here between gleaning and reaping. So reaping is when you bring in the crops, you know, you start to harvest your crops and you bring them in and everything that's involved with that. Uh, but then gleaning is when the the uh, the less fortunate in the land, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and notice Ruth is two of these things. She is a sojourner and she is a widow. So she's got like two marks of of uh, social disadvantage to her. Okay, and um, so the gleaning is when these people are then allowed to come over the fields that have just been reaped and to gather whatever has not been gathered um, by the reapers. And this is, you recall, in passages like Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, Leviticus 23, 22, and Deuteronomy 24, 14, this idea that um, this is part of the provision that you are to make for the poor in your land. There are, of course, other things as well, but one of the things is you don't glean, you don't reap all the way up to the edges of the field and you don't go over it twice getting what you missed because you're purposely supposed to leave some for those who don't have uh, their own crops or, or who are in need and certainly Ruth fits that category. So she's uh, ready to do this thing. She's among the gleaners and so you get this idea that like here's this wealthy man or at least this man of means and he's got a field, and he's got his workers out there, and standing by waiting for the reaping to be done so that they can go and glean are, um, are, are the poor, are, are people, uh, and Ruth is among them. And Boaz comes, and, uh, and, and, uh, and he, he notices Ruth, and um, he's like, whose young woman is this? And it's it's, we're not told why it is that he notices her. Um, uh, was she alone at this point? Was she uh, standing out in some other way? Did, did he think she was beautiful? It's hard to know. Um, but she's, he's told um, she is a Moabite. 
and she's come back with Naomi from the country uh, from her country um, and has asked to please um, glean please let me glean and gather the sheaves after the reapers and so she's come and she's been here from the early morning until now except for a, a short rest so Boaz then comes to her and he tells her you know uh, don't go to glean in another field or leave this one right you don't have to go anywhere else in fact stay with my young women and as the fields are reaped go with them go with the reapers right the and and um have I and I've charged my young men so the 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 ones who kind of like keep guard over my field who are in charge of stuff I've told I've told them uh not to give you any trouble about this and um when you're thirsty you can drink from the from our water and and she and she's overcome with this kindness like you're gonna let me you're gonna let me reap and uh, so she's she bows her face to the ground. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a for- foreigner? And Boaz says, it's because I've heard of all that you've done for your mother-in-law. Like, you are a stand-up gal, Ruth. You have um, you are dealing kindly with her, so I want to keep deal kindly with you. I, I know that you're in this foreign land, um, but and, and Yahweh repay you for what you've done. So he sees his generosity as to her as a blessing from the Lord. And notice the language here, the God of Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a kind of a classic way of talking about God's um, God's love and his providential care for his people. And so um, I think of a psalm like Psalm 57, we just read uh, a little while back, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, refuge till the storms of destruction um, pass by. And, um, and so uh, then at mealtime, he invites her to come over, gives her bread, uh, gives her wine, and she's sitting along with the reapers, eating the roasted grain with them. And then, when the day is done, she instructs her 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 um, her uh, people, let her glean even among the sheaves. Don't reproach her, and pull out some from the bundles and leave it for her to glean. Okay, and let her take it. So take some of the stuff that 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 we're taking home with us that you're bringing to my house. Go ahead and throw and throw it out. So so like every chance he can get, he wants to give her more and more and more. Um, and but when she comes home, she has an ephah of barley. Now an ephah is somewhere between ten and twenty liters. Um, the, this is uh, part of the the dry uh, measurements uh, that are common at that time, and it's uh, sometimes unclear exactly how much it is. It's a tenth of a homer, and as I said, somewhere between ten and twenty liters. And this is interesting because. Uh, we know from ancient sources that the ration of a, of a person for, for a day was about a liter of barley. And so she returns with enough, about enough for both women, both her and Naomi, to eat for a week. So this is an incredible amount that a woman who has gone to glean is returning home with. And when she does return home, Naomi asks her, you know, who did you go to glean with? And Ruth confirms it was Boaz and Naomi, um, who is constantly saying, blessed be so-and-so, blessed be so-and-so, you know, Yahweh has done this, may Yahweh show you, 
chesed and all this stuff, right? Blessed be the man who has done this. Um, may he be blessed by Yahweh. Um, and indeed, he's actually one of our redeemers, something she's actually already uh, mentioned, um, although not calling him a redeemer yet. Um, and uh, so uh, she points out that this is a good situation for her because she she knows she's safe there, whereas in some other field of a stranger, who knows what might happen to Ruth. Um, so these women uh, then have uh, have food, and they continue until this situation continues until the end of uh, barley harvest. Okay, that's it for Ruth today. Now let's go over to Proverbs, and uh, we are in chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17. So starting in verse 8, a man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. So this has to do with the way in which others regard you, depending on whether you're living wise or, or foolishly. Are you commended or are you despised? Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. This, I think, is a potentially very confusing proverb. What I think is going on here is that, uh, so there's a contrast, right? The lowly who has a servant and the great man who lacks bread. And um, and the, the, the lowly who has a servant, the, well, first the lowly, um, this is somebody who is humble, who doesn't make a show of himself, who doesn't live a showy life, rather than the one who plays a great man yet doesn't actually have anything. Here we think of somebody who maybe uh, today might be comparable to someone who, who has a lavish lifestyle or a lot of nice things, but they buy them on credit, right? Like that there's there's actually no real stability in their life. Um, they, um, they simply, or, or somebody maybe who... Um, is poor, and yet when they have money, they spend it on lavish things. They spend it on fancy clothes, flashy shoes to make it, you know, to make themselves look good. Although, the, again, there's no real stability underneath. Uh, whereas that that man is compo- is compared here as it's worse off to be that person, of course, than to be someone who's homely, who is lowly, and has a a servant. A servant is not crazy amount of wealth. Now, we've talked about how people enter into the status of servitude, quote-unquote slavery, so I won't rehash that here. Um, but this is not a person who has no means, obviously. If, if, you, um, uh, if you are in the position to be lending to somebody and have a, a Hebrew servant, then uh, as, as repayment for that, obviously, you're doing okay. But the idea is that one person is showy about it and has nothing, and one has reasonable means, yet uh, is humble about it. Uh, Verse 10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Um, The the pet owner's favorite verse. (laughs) Okay, but yeah, so a righteous person cares even for for animals. Um, uh, Whereas even uh, if you're wicked, even your mercy is cruel. Uh, verse 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks lacks sense. So this is be diligent with your work. Don't go and, and do things that uh, are, are worthless, that are, that are vain. Uh, verse 12, whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, 
but the root of the righteous bears fruit. Verse 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. These are particular pretty straightforward. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Okay, the, that uh, definitely rings of some stuff we've been reading in, in Judges lately, huh? Uh, verse 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. So do you respond to um, being insulted or, 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 you know, when somebody does something that, that rubs you the wrong way, do you respond by making it known at once that you're upset about it? Or do you, or are you able to to just ignore it to be able to be almost um, taking the high ground there? And uh, finally, here, verse seventeen: Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. Again, I think pretty straightforward. Okay, that's it for Proverbs. Now let's go over to John, and we are in chapter nine, um, and we're actually going to do the whole chapter today. So Jesus. As he passed by, that's pretty vague, right? He sees a man who is blind from birth, and his disciples um, ask him a question that's in line with this very basic idea, uh, which is, it's, it's kind of like reverse logic, that if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. So here's a man who was born blind from birth, right? So his blindness, this bad thing, obviously, it's a result of someone doing something bad, but it's from birth. So he's obviously not the one who's doing something wrong. It must have been his parents who did something wrong. And so um, they want insight from their rabbi. Um, it was uh, Who was it who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers them, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, there's, this, there's a purpose to this man's affliction, and we're about to see it. And he tells them, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Um, probably referring to the time uh, when Jesus will, quote unquote, go away, um, referring to his death. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so here he's going to do a sign that illustrates that, just like the sign with the feeding of the 5,000 is, I, I am the bread of life, right? Here is another sign that will demonstrate another one of these I am statements of Jesus. So he goes, and then he does this kind of weird thing. We see something similar. We saw something similar with the, with the man um, whom uh, he, he spit on his eyes, and I commented a little bit on it there. Here, again, uh, the, our focus probably shouldn't be on the weirdness, right? He, he spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva and anoints the man's eyes with the mud. Um, and it, again, it's, it's just it's just difficult to determine exactly what the meaning of that gesture is. But what is more interesting is what he says to him. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And <clears throat> he went and washed and came back seeing. And interestingly... John sees the need to tell us what Siloam means. What does it mean? It means sent. Okay, so now keeping in mind John's love of these double entendres, 
Okay, this man is blind. Now, we know the, the metaphor of light that he uses, right? I am the light of the world, which he will repeat in, in this chapter. Um, come and see, okay, the idea of seeing. Um, so, he's blind. He's going to make it so that he can see, but he will only see if he goes and washes in what? The pool whose name is Scent. And think about one of the major themes of Jesus' discourses in this gospel, that I have been sent from the Father. So you kind of break it down. If you want to see, <clears throat> you must go and be washed by the one who is sent. Okay? But actually, he goes and he does this, and he comes back seeing. And the neighbors are like, oh my gosh, what's going on? This Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And, uh, and others are like, no, he just kind of looks like them. They don't know. John likes to give us the, the, the muttering of people to, uh, you know, the trying to figure stuff out, what the crowds are saying. Some said he's a prophet. Some said he's the Christ. But no one spoke openly, right? So things like that. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus and the man speaking to the people, to the, the townsfolk, says, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they're looking for Jesus. Um, and they bring him to the Pharisees, because obviously something crazy has happened here. And the Phar- and and John notes that it's the Sabbath when this has happened. And we remember what happened the last time Jesus healed on a Sabbath, right? He put the, really put them at odds with the put them at odds with the Pharisees. So they start questioning this guy, and he tells them, you know, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see, and. Then you hear this debate among the Pharisees, right? Some are like, well, he's not keeping the Sabbath, so obviously this isn't from God. And, of course, that's ridiculous on several grounds, not least of which is the fact that that hardly constitutes Sabbath violation. Uh, but then others have a more favorable view of Jesus. And the phar- pharisaical opinion of Jesus is not unified. It's not They don't just think one thing. But others are saying, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs, right? How would he be able to do this if, if, if he's, um, you know, God's enemy. And there's a division among them. And so they question him, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he says, he is a prophet. And the reason why they're asking actually gets revealed down in verse 22, because the one thing, the one answer that they will not accept is he is the Christ. And um, so they want to see, like, what is this guy Going, going to be going around telling people because they've we, we learn in verse 22 is that they they had agreed that anybody who confesses Jesus to be the Messiah the Christ is to be put out of the synagogue so that's how seriously they're taking that that's the confession that they want to keep out of the minds and off the lips of the peoples uh, so they're they're questioning him to see is this guy going to be a problem for us in this way Um but they they're skeptical. They don't they don't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight, right? So you know maybe this this guy is never really was blind in the first place. And then they called his parents in, and yeah, they, his parents confirmed, yeah, he, um, um, he was born blind. And they ask him, well, how then does he now see? Okay, notice how thick they're being, how thick headed they're being, and his parents. Uh, say, hey, look, all we know is that he was born blind, but now he sees, and we don't know. Um, He's old enough to answer for himself. Ask him. And John tells us, as I mentioned, uh, that they're saying this out of fear because 
they realize how opposed to Jesus the religious establishment is. So they're trying to get themselves off the hook, um, even to the extent, of course, that they're, um, they're, they've, they've made a decision that anybody who, th- who says that Jesus is the Messiah is not to be allowed in the synagogue. Um, so they call the man again, and they say, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the man answers, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they say to him, well, well, what did he do? And and he's and they, he's already told them this stuff, right? Like, what did he do? How did he open? They're back to this how question, and he answers them. And I love I love this answer. I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> like, that's probably not in the top ten list of things to say to uh, the Pharisees uh, at this point. And it says they revile him, and they're like. You are his disciple. We, you know whose disciples we are? Moses. And, uh, and, and we know that God has spoken to, to Moses. But as for this man, and now note the double meaning here, right? We do not know where he comes from. What has been the subject of almost all of the big dialogues of Jesus? Where, who sent me? Where I come from? Right? And when he was dialoguing with the quote-unquote Jews who had believed in him, what he kept on saying there and, and uh, other places in this speech uh, during the Feast of, of Booths is, is, you don't know where I come from, but I know where I come from, and that's where my authority uh, lies, right? And here they are straight up saying, we don't know where he comes from. Uh, the man then answers, why, this is an amazing thing. Getting a bit cheeky with them, right? You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Well, here's some logic for you. We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's that's what they're that's that's the assumption that they're going on, right? Like, uh, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, right? And he's like, well, let's let's think backwards about this. Um, uh, God God listens to this man. Never since the world began has has. It, it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so maybe you need to reevaluate your um, your idea of whether or not a he's a sinner and where he quote unquote comes from. Because note here what the man says: if um, uh, if he were not from God. So raising the issue of whether or not Jesus is a sinner, someone who breaks the law of God and whether or not he is indeed from God. And then they are just, this sets them off. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And then Jesus goes and finds him. And apparently this guy doesn't even know what Jesus looks like, right? Because he comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Right, that this this is how eager this man is, how open this man's heart is. And Jesus says to him, you have seen him. Okay, remember, whoever looks on the Son of Man and believes in him will have eternal life. Chapter 6, right? The looking is the eating, eating of his flesh. The believing is the drinking of his blood. You have seen him, and now will you believe in him? It is he who is speaking to you. And the man says, Lord, I believe. So here is a man who has seen and believes, okay? Um, uh, John will bring this full circle 
at the end of the, the gospel, of course, when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and who believe. But notice that this pairing with seeing and believing. And he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So there's the meaning of this, his sixth sixth sign. Um, and interestingly, some of the Pharisees apparently are uh, within earshot of this, and they say to him, are, are, you, are we also blind? So you're saying that we're blind. And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Um, this is an interesting text because this uh, is one of the passages in the Bible that I think really confirms that a person's level of guilt in their rejection of God and in their sin is tied, that, that level of guilt, right, is tied to the level of knowledge that they attain to, that they have attained to, that they have, or that they claim to, say, to, to, to have. That those who know more, those who quote-unquote see more, are held to greater account than those who do not. Okay, well that's it for today. As always, I thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.